0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare.
1: And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare.
0: You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed.
1: For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com.
2: So, Ben, have you chosen names for your baby cannons?
0: You know, I, I was struggling with it, and I even put out a request on Twitter for help naming the baby cannons
1: and and help appear help
0: appear well lots of people sent in many great suggestions for the names of the baby cannons uh but yesterday the question got answered by the president when he threatened the north koreans with fire and fury and i thought there it is baby cannon is fire and baby cannon sibling is fury uh, so which is which No, I think the original baby cannon is the fire and the the new one. What if the president actually
2: threatens North Korea with your baby cannons?
0: Baby cannons. You know, if that's
3: how this massive international <laughs> crisis gets worked out is by the firing of two three-inch baby cannons over the border, I think I can live with that. Yeah,
0: I, I I think we, you might win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I, I, I also wanted to say that baby cannons are not actually acts of war. They are heralds of investigative journalism. And so if the president wants to use baby cannon or, or the baby cannon sibling— Uh, to release important information about North Korean crimes. uh, um, Just
3: shoot it out into the atmosphere? Yeah,
0: we would be, I'm sure both cannons would be happy to participate in that episode.
2: (laughs) Baby cannons, not here for war, but here to fuck shit up. (laughs) Yeah,
0: there you go.
2: (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Fire and Fury edition. I'm Shane Harris, vacation-ready reporter. So ready for vacation, you guys.
3: When are you going on vacation?
2: Uh, it, is, it is Wednesday. I'm leaving for vacation tomorrow. <laughs> and we'll be and off next week. And yeah. as a
0: result, we will not be having an episode That's next right. week. That's
2: right. little point of housekeeping before we get started. Everyone gets a nice breather, a break. And if anything
3: breaks in the news, you're going to have to live without our scintillating commentary. Exactly. <laughs> You'll
1: just have to process it on your own.
2: Things better not break too big because I don't want to have to turn, the, turn this car around and come back to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friend Susan Hennessy Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman wittes Hi, guys. Hey, Hi. Jake. Are you guys escaping the heat of Washington at all?
3: Actually, today is such a glorious it's so day. Nice. I don't it's want to escape town. anywhere. And Uh-oh. I'm taking a staycation. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. I have a bathroom contractor to hire. Oh,
0: right.
2: I have,
3: I have bills to so, pay. <laughs> Susan, it's it's gonna gonna Susan has so
0: a good bathroom awesome. contractor for you. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, you oh, call God. me. I'll give you uh, the <laughs> world's <laughs> worst bathroom contractor. Unless, of course, wait. you want a toilet to sit in your bedroom for like five months, in which case I literally <laughs> do have the perfect. I, person. I, I
0: believe that toilet sitting in your bedroom was at one point an object lesson on rats. That's right. Security. It may have been. And yeah. the murderous rage that you felt mm-hmm. toward this contractor well, was actually discussed it's, it's fully functional
1: issue. uh fear not rational security listeners my bathroom is done Glad to hear it.
2: all right this week on the podcast president trump warns north korea not to make any more threats to the united states with its pursuit of a nuclear weapon attorney general jeff sessions announces a new crackdown on press leaks and the russia investigation heats up with a grand jury and a pre-dawn raid. We're going to get to all of that. Um, let's start with, uh, it, was, it was a big day for news on North Korea yesterday, Tuesday. First, the Washington Post reporting on a new, uh, or new-ish, maybe we'll talk about that a bit, uh, assessment that North Korea has successfully miniaturized a nuclear device, which is a key step in getting a nuclear weapon that could actually be delivered to a U.S. city. Uh, then followed up by President Trump's statements uh, at Mar-a-Lago uh, at the end of what was supposed to be a conference on I, opioid addiction
3: in New Jersey, not in Florida. Oh, yeah.
2: No, that's right. They don't do Mar-a-Lago in the summer. Right. It's Jersey. the
1: winter White House.
3: <laughs> Sorry. the Winter. Right.
2: Uh, asked about uh, that Washington Post story. The president said, quote, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening beyond a normal state. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which the world has never seen before.
3: I appreciate the alliteration. I I think it's also really interesting the um, uncertain origins of this alliterative phrase and the appendage. Like the world has never seen. So, you had a really interesting tidbit in your story yesterday, Shane, about where, where you guys right. think this came from. Right. Harry S. Truman. Harry, can you like give the context? So,
2: actually, credit to uh, one of our editors for finding this little nugget, but it, it, Harry S. Truman essentially uttering this phrase in order to persuade the Japanese to surrender uh, at World War II. And so, he's talking about this in the context of. You know, raining down atomic bombs on Japan and basically saying, "Submit and surrender, or you know, a fury will be delivered upon you, the likes of which the world has never seen before."
3: And indeed, the world had never seen it before at that time. (laughs) So that, in a sense, is a direct reference to potential nuclear attack, right? So that's that's really, really sobering. On the other hand, there was a uh, another. Uh, reporter last night on Twitter I saw who said, well, look, Trump uses this the world has never seen phrase all the time. This is just standard rhetoric for him. Uh, And and it doesn't mean anything.
2: Yeah, I I get that. I, I take that part. But I'm with you on the even if it wasn't a direct reference to Truman, which I mean, I don't know that he's enough of a student of history to have made deliberately made the reference. But um, when you're talking about fire and fury in the context of
0: nuclear nuclear weapons. war,
2: I mean it's unmistakable what you mean, right? It's the implied threat that if you use a nuclear weapon, we will, you know, turn your country into a sheet of glass, basically. Also,
1: notably, no one on the NSC was apparently told about these comments ahead of time, right? So it's right. he's just putting so out the these course. words right. without even thinking about them, vetting them.
3: Just although if you out watch there. the tape, it does seem like he's reading now. Whether he was reading all those words or not, because we. We don't know, because he does ad-lib all the time. But someone who's staffing him at the golf club Mm. in Bedminster uh, clearly prepared these remarks for him. It was not entirely uncalculated.
2: And they're not really his... They don't always sound like his words, fire and fury. It's a little poetic. It's a
3: little too poetic for Donald Trump. So, you know, there's some deliberation behind this, but it uh, apparently did not involve his national security team, which is worrisome as well. So... If you know the uh, the poetic, perhaps Stephen Miller esque figure, just to speculate, came up with this Truman reference. That's worrisome. The lack of involvement in the national security team is worrisome. And then, of course, what everyone is commenting on, which is that this kind of blustery rhetoric in the context of an extremely delicate um, uh, confrontation with a not entirely rational. Uh, personalized North Korean regime that has proven nuclear capability um, is deeply, deeply worrisome because the chance of unintended escalation here is not small. And so, you know, this is exactly the moment when you would expect a superpower, which has plenty of resources at its disposal, to be measured, to be patient, to weigh its words, and to back to know that whatever it says, it's going to have to back up a hundred percent, and it's going to have to have allies alongside. This is exactly when you don't want a president without consultation internally, much less with allies, to go blustering off in front of a microphone.
0: Ben. So a few few thoughts. Um, first, uh, it is worth noting that the people that Trump sounded most like in those comments were the North Koreans. That is, these blustery comments about incineration and – I mean, this is very characteristic of the North Korean regime and the way it kind of flails about in uh, in projecting – you know, potential violence and doom.
2: Sea of fire is actually a term they use and right. did use yesterday. Against, I mean, yeah. they
0: sound they sound a lot like this, and so you know, it has not traditionally been the U.S. posture to sound a lot like the north koreans. I'm not sure what significance that has, but You, you think th- he's
3: trying to out-crazy the crazy?
0: Well, I I don't know that he's strategic enough to be trying to do anything, but I think he's I think what the north koreans often try to do is to play what, you know, Richard Nixon used to call the madman theory, right? And And Trump has often said he wants to be more unpredictable. And there's a kind of a thematic link there. And one of the ways in which he's being unpredictable is by uh, casually threatening nuclear war. Uh, You know, that's a a kind of an alarming thing for people who believe that for deterrence to be effective, it has to be very certain what will happen if certain clear lines are crossed. What are
2: those clear lines in this case?
0: Well, I I mean, I think the clear line that we have tried to hold um, uh, very clearly is, A, we will defend our regional allies, uh, that an attack on those allies uh, uh, will result in the destruction of the North Korean state. Uh, and that nobody should doubt our willingness to use whatever force is necessary in order to, A, protect ourselves and our troops there, but B, protect the uh, alliance partners that we have, both South Korea and Japan, and uh, uh, and also to protect our territories in the region, specifically Guam. Um, and, you know, and so... I mean, I think the the one thing we have tried never to do now, in many ways, what Trump said is actually not inconsistent with that, which is, you know, you 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 mess with us, we're going to dust you from the face of the earth. And but there is a tonal, you know, real difference that I think is significant. And I think it is also significant that the North Koreans responded to it within a few hours by threatening Guam. Um, And so you do run into this possibility, I don't know how likely it is, of a a sort of rhetorical escalation that then somebody has to put their, you know, their credibility behind. And I think that is worrisome.
3: Well, I guess two things. Number one, on on that last point, Ben, the the North Korean response was very, very carefully calibrated, I think. And because we don't have formal diplomatic relations, because we don't talk to one another, um, public statements are and have been the primary means of communication between the U.S. and the North Korean. So the North Korean response said, you know, we are examining and we will make a recommendation so that at the time of his choosing, our leader can... Make a decision about attacking Guam. All of which is to say, uh, we're not escalating rhetoric right now, and we're not threatening imminent action. It, to me, it was very, very clear signal. So they are not; they are trying not to escalate, and we need to see that and understand that. Um, but I also think that this is happening. This this rhetorical back and forth and is happening in the context of. A real policy problem um, that the president's rhetoric and and bad judgment is obscuring. And we talked about this a little bit a couple months ago on the podcast, which is that for a long, long time, the American approach across administrations to North Korea has been to try and deny them advances in the development of their nuclear weapons program including nuclear capable icbms and to try and wait out the the longevity of this regime that strategy that that strategic objective is now broken because mm. it's clear that we are not able to deny their progress um, and whatever denial we'd managed during the Obama administration, they still now have acquired ICBM capability. They still apparently have miniaturized, although they haven't put those two things together right. in the way that's necessary to have an effective ICBM with a nuclear warhead. So we, we need now to build a new strategy that has a new objective. And there's no consensus even within the expert community about what that objective should be or how to get there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of the worrying and interesting things is, right, the sort of theory that we'll, we'll accidentally get into conflict, we'll sort of blunder into it through, sort of this through this heightened rhetoric. You know, if you look at some of um, Trump's, I guess, national security advisors, sort of Sebastian Gorka and Miller and other people who are going God. on TV oh, God. Susan just- and talking about, you know, oh, you know, this is just like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which not really. But it does seem as though they are, um, they sort of relish this as, as, a potential opportunity for a crisis that then Trump is going to solve that the, sort of the the very, very strange way. And then the lack of care, the lack of even sort of reflection on the gravity of, of the situation, it's. I mean, it seems sort of absurd or, or ridiculous to think, you know, look, we're going to accidentally get into a nuclear confrontation, but it's, it seems plausible at this point. Wag like, the dog much? One of these people are well, going right. to get right. on TV and say something and that's, you know, there's going to be real consequences here.
0: So a couple of things, a couple of things on that. Um, first of all, it is really important to stress that it is not Donald Trump's fault that we are in this situation, Right. And that the U.S. record on North Korean nuclear issues is one of uh, unremitting failure across administration. And this was a matter that the Clinton administration devoted a lot of energy to and failed at completely. The Bush administration devoted a lot of energy to and failed at completely. And the Obama administration devoted a lot of energy to and failed at completely. And it may be that the reason that no administration has been able to address it is because it's actually an unsolvable problem. Um, But we don't
3: know what it would have looked like without those efforts. So they may have delayed.
0: They may have delayed it significantly. But there has been progress over time and failures in all of those administrations. And at no time did any administration, uh, you know, significantly address or remediate the problem of North Korea's uh, will to nuclearization. What Trump is doing, doing here, it's not clear to me that his policy is actually a bad one, which is to say, try to get the Chinese to address it and then turn to sanctions potentially against, you know, Chinese firms doing business in North Korea as a, as, as your next and probably last major leverage point. Uh, the rhetoric is extremely bad and and may as susan says has co- have consequences and that's a larger piece of the president's personal lack of discipline in all yeah. kinds of areas the last point i will make is that um we have on the lawfare podcast this week two uh unusually expert voices on this subject uh uh mira rap hooper And uh, Stefan Haggard um, uh, discussing the larger sort of North Korea uh, issue and the missiles issue in particular. And that we recorded that actually before the latest news. But it's uh, for people who want a real deep dive in that. It's an unusually good and thoughtful conversation. Yeah,
2: I highly recommend it. I listened to it the other day and it's excellent. Um, All right, let's move on to our second topic, Leaks. Leaks and the leaky leakers who love them. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff Sessions is not one of those lovers of leaks, apparently. So uh,
3: we're we're sitting here as a podcast with a journalist, a former journalist, right. a national security lawyer, and a national security policy person. So one might imagine that we could have divided views on. Yeah, this leak we might.
2: Question. Let's let's find out. Everybody, um, just vote
1: pro leaks, good leaks, bad. <laughs> <laughs> Wrap it up.
2: I don't know. Lawfare might be a journalistic organization, too. Who knows? Um, uh, Jeff Sessions announced last Friday that the Justice Department is pursuing leak investigations. The New York Times, among others, reported that uh, the rate of investigations is about three times as many as were open at the end of the Obama era. Uh,
3: slackers.
2: <laughs> which gives you an idea of the priority of the resources that are being devoted to this. And we should say that um, a leak investigation, uh, if done fully, is not necessarily a small amount of resources. It can actually take up a lot of time and a lot of energy uh, from counterintelligence agents and others that you might suspect would be otherwise devoted to other priorities like countering. Spies and such, um, which is not to minimize how the, the Bureau views this, but um, obviously this comes and this is this is not happening in a vacuum. This is happening amidst the backdrop of President Trump, both calling for an end to the leaks, the illegal leaks, as he likes to tweet it, and berating his attorney general publicly for not doing enough to crack down on them. And Um, retweeting those leaks at the same time as he does those things. He has retweeted some of those leaks, including one about North Korea yesterday loading missiles onto a patrol boat and a Fox News story that was clearly based on a leak of classified intelligence. Um, So let's take this in two pieces. Let's start first with the... The question of however you guys want to come at it is it the question of the war on leaks or the the leverage that the president applied to the attorney general in this case and whether that was appropriate and an appropriate response to what's happening and then second I want to unpack a bit um, the reexamination that Sessions said the Justice Department is making with respect to how they handle journalists in leak investigations that's a separate issue but let's talk first maybe Susan you want to start about you know, what's happening here is a matter of policy and uh, and whether it was right for Trump to lean on Sessions to go down this road.
1: Right. So this is a um, it's a really tricky space. Um, so the, the first issue is that not all leaks are the same. So not all leaks are even illegal. Um, so there are leaks of classified information and, and that is illegal. Um, and then there are forms of there, there are leaks of, you know, privileged or private executive branch information that isn't necessarily a crime, you can get fired for it and in some cases if like if you steal documents there are other sort of um, potential criminal offenses but lots of times it's just stuff you're not supposed to do but isn't necessarily a crime Within that sort of range of space, there's also a huge difference in terms of what the, the possible consequences or harm that might come from leaks. So the problem is we're having this broader leaks conversation, um, some of which have enormous operational impacts. We've talked a little bit about how shocking sort of these FISA intercepts leaks are, how consequential those might be. You might actually lose sources and methods over them versus there's kind of fringe stuff that's just frankly embarrassing to the president.
2: That's just gossip. Right. Um, and White then House. stuff
1: that's sort of in the middle, um, you know, like the the leaks of the transcripts of uh, presidential phone calls where the substance of the calls maybe wasn't sources of methods information, but violates a longstanding norm in ways that there could be really serious consequences in undermining the president's ability to have confidential communications. So we're already in this sort of confusing space of understanding what we're even talking about. Um, but within that, there are clearly really, really bad Consequential leaks that the Justice Department should be investigating. They are clearly occurring at a higher rate than before. It's not clear to me that um, they're all coming from the intelligence community. I think quite a few are coming from the White House itself. Some help the president, some harm the president. Right. So it's sort of coming in all directions. At the same time, we have Trump only um, being offended and concerned about leaks that are embarrassing or politically harmful to him, right? That show him to be lying, show him not to have policy in place, whatever else. Show him, show to him not to be at the groveling, home. exactly. And so, whenever he's directing sessions to go after leakers. The issue is that that looks like pretextual political retaliation. He doesn't actually care about investigating the most serious breaches, right, carefully sort of assigning those resources, actually looking into serious national security harms. But instead, he wants him to go after sort of his political, you know, his political opponents. This is the reason why you need an independent Department of Justice, because whenever they investigate... Real crimes that they actually should be looking into. You want to have the confidence that they're doing that because a career prosecutor has determined that this is an appropriate thing to do because we've seen such an erosion in the degree of independence. It it is whenever and, and whenever you see sort of frankly strange press conferences like sessions, it really is difficult to have the confidence in that and it's hard to know how to talk about this in a way that both recognizes the gravity of the leaks and also doesn't play into the president's narrative.
3: I I think that's you know, for me, this Sessions press conference was basically the Sessions suck up press conference, because it was clearly, you know, it comes in the context of, as you said, Shane, the president berating the attorney general on a variety of grounds for weeks at a time, generating a lot of unhappiness among congressional Republicans and others for his treatment of Sessions. And Sessions if he wanted to stay as attorney general, needing to do something to demonstrate his loyalty and the fact that he's on board with and advancing the president's agenda. And lo and behold, he does a press conference on leaks. So in that sense, it's deeply, deeply political. Um, And I agree with all of the qualms that Susan expressed about that. But I also think that there's a process point buried under here, which is that this president has so personalized The question of leaks. And typically, you know, leaks happen out of an administration, whether they are of classified material and constitute a crime or not. They happen because there are people inside the administration who are trying to get out a point of view, either in support of the official line or contrary to the official line. Sometimes those leaks are, you know, sort of unauthorized but authorized leaks designed to bolster an administration narrative by providing anonymous sourcing to make it even more credible. Sometimes those leaks are people within an administration who feel like their point of view is not getting aired, or they're trying to put, you know, let people outside the administration know about something that's going on inside, because they want to stop that thing, because they think it's bad. And so, the f- this administration has been having a ton of leaks because it's factionalized And because it doesn't have good process, (laughs) if it had better process, you would have fewer leaks Mm -hmm. Um, and all of these issues would get aired inside and you would have maybe more authorized leaks, but fewer unauthorized leaks. And the fact that Trump has made this all about him and whether you're with him or against him, I think just exacerbates the problem. Because for, for a lot of people inside the administration, this information is not about supporting the president or being loyal to the president. It's about what's good policy, and they're not going to let that go.
0: Ben. So a few things. Um, One is whenever there's a leaks debate, uh, the merits of the debate always get conflated by the fact that the press engages the subject as an interest group rather than as a uh, what it should be, which is a, uh, you know, neutral account uh, uh, of Of the subject. And, you know, the press here had its knees jerk in a very predictable fashion. Uh, You could have, like, written everybody's tweets for them. Uh, And it turns out that the press uh, doesn't think leaks are a big problem and doesn't really believe that. Any of the damage that people claim associated with leaks is real. And they think it's actually just fine if their sources give them all sorts of material with impunity. And rather they think the outrageous thing is that anyone would ever want to invest, investigate a leak and reach for the smelling salts, uh, Really the outrageous thing is if you would ever inconvenience a reporter by say uh looking at his phone records or asking her to testify. Um There's and, some epic trolling going on over here. <laughs> so I just want to say that, you know, I agree with everything that Susan said about um there being some very disturbing elements of Sessions' um uh press conference with respect to political interference from the White House and sort of politically ordering up leak investigations. That's a very troubling thing for reasons of Justice Department independence. However, the press is out to lunch on this question, and there is simply no way that if you have this volume of leaks over a long period of time, that the Justice Department institutionally is not going to respond to it by having more leak right, investigations. Right, like we should not be
2: surprised given the volume of leaks that there are triple the number of investigations, right? Because right? Um, it's saying? more
0: than triple the number of yeah. leaks. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I just want to say, like, what, you know, everybody, you know, who's, uh, you know, the fact that leaks are bad for Trump does not mean they are not bad for other things too, including some very important government interest and so including some very important civil liberties interests. Some of the things that have leaked are egregious violations of civil liberties.
2: Um, and Like names of people, US citizens and intelligence
0: reports. No, I think it's
1: worse than that. It's It's damaging and embarrassing information about US citizens that were picked up because other intelligence targets were talking about them like it's, it's taking gossip laundering it, giving it sort of the sheen of credibility by it being an intelligence intercept, and then leaking it publicly.
0: And this is exactly the reason we had the post-Watergate reforms, to prevent the political abuse of intelligence by, among other things, leaking stuff to favored reporters. Uh, And there are some genuine, real national security issues that are at stake here. And there are some genuine, real civil liberties issues at stake here. And- To my friends in the press, I just say everything that is good for you is not ipso facto, therefore good in an absolute sense. And there are things that inconvenience reporters for very good reasons. And leaks are complicated. There's, there's, you know, there's reasons to be enthusiastic about the stories they fuel, and also to be anxious about the damage to the fabric of of other interests that they they cause.
2: Hold on, we're, we're going a little long in the segment, but I want to just quickly, as we said, so we get to it: the question of the Justice Department then re-examining the guidelines for how it handles <clears throat> reporters in the course of the investigations, which means at what point does the Justice Department or the FBI? subpoena a journalist to demand that journalist's source. And Sessions gave the indication that they were reexamining those guidelines. I will say, to be completely fair to the Trump administration, the Bush administration openly flirted with the idea of indicting reporters under the Espionage Act. The Obama Justice Department subpoenaed phone records without notifying journalists in violation of DOJ guidelines. So this is not a purely Trump is at war with the press kind of scenario here. But the difference here, the obvious difference is neither President Bush nor President Obama publicly declared the press the enemy of the American people and routinely attacked them and accused them of lying and trying to undermine him. I think in that environment, we as journalists would be damn fools not to assume that they're going to use every tool in the arsenal and perhaps some they don't have to come after us directly.
0: And and look, just... To, to to round that point out, the Justice Department has an enormous reservoir of authority since the Supreme Court's decision in Brandsburg Be Hayes that it basically does not use with respect right. to compelling journalists. There's to,
2: actually no such thing as a reporter's privilege.
0: Exactly, particularly <laughs> not in in the federal context. Right. A lot of and states. We thought
2: for a long time that there was.
0: A lot of states have shield laws. But the Justice Department can do all kinds of things to reporters if it wants to, and the only restraint on that is, uh, you know, political pressure and a, and a sort of a, pol- a layer of policy. Those policies are always ripe for review, and under current circumstances, it would be uh, surprising if they were not being reviewed. What is alarming and upsetting about this situation is not that the Justice Department is scratching its head and thinking, what more can we do about leaks, even with respect to journalists? What's alarming and upsetting, as you just said, Shane, is the political context in which they're doing it and the fact that the president is, uh, you know, out of control on this subject. And that gives it a completely different political sheen.
2: Okay, let's move on to our last topic here. Um, so, some developments in the special counsel's investigation of Russian interference in the election. Uh,
3: What's that? Russia interfered in our election. Yeah,
2: did, did you hear about this? Have you heard this? Have I thought
3: this? that was just all a bunch of silly stories that the Clinton campaign made up to justify its <laughs> its loss. The greatest loss in the history of
2: the world. Some people are saying that. Um, <laughs> some people are also saying. <laughs> That Bob Mueller is now using a grand jury in Washington just a hop, skip, and a jump from the office. And
0: mysteriously not in West Virginia, Newt Gingrich informs me. <laughs> oh, well, that's good
1: Funny know. how that works.
0: To issue subpoenas
2: as part of the investigation, we've just found out this morning as we're taping uh, that uh, federal agents raided an apartment in northern Virginia owned by Paul Manafort apparently to gain... Uh, <clears throat> or to get documents that were deemed relevant to the investigation, so grand juries, subpoenas are going out, raids are happening. Um, uh, Susan, let me ask you: I mean, what do do we draw from this that the investigation is entering a new phase, or is this what you would expect in an investigation of this nature? Um,
1: I don't think it's particularly surprising, right? Like, this is sort of the ordinary course of, of a serious investigation. We already knew that there was sort of a there was a serious ongoing investigation that it involved looking into possible criminal activity. And so the sort of the ordinary tool that you would expect someone like Mueller to be using is to convene a grand jury. It's really it's the only way he's gonna be able to compel people to testify, compel them to produce documents, sort of do all that work. Um so it's not that it's not significant. It certainly is and I think it sort of it it footstomps just the the gravity of the situation, um, the the disconnect between uh, you know the the intensity and 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 gravity of this inquiry and sort of Trump and his team's inability to sort of understand that part of it right that this is serious they need to treat it seriously that it's a criminal inquiry that kind of stuff but just in terms of uh, the fact that they convened a grand jury that's not, that doesn't mean they found you know smoking gun evidence that they're about to indict the president i mean i think that they it a little bit was um was overread uh, in in terms of the the immediate reaction i don't know ben do you do you think there's more to it less to it um
0: i agree that it is largely a uh natural progression of where you would expect the investigation to be. And I think it's actually a little bit surprised It would be surprising if it or something like it didn't happen in the next few weeks or months, you would expect that that meant that the investigation was not progressing into a criminal phase. Um, that said, uh, I don't know how much to read into it uh, because Uh, You use grand juries to acquire information in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons. And so it it could mean more or less. Uh, I do think executing a search warrant against Manafort uh, suggests something more, actually, which is that because there is a known standard for getting a search warrant which is that there has to be probable cause of criminal activity and that means that there's uh some judge issued a, a, a you know for that search warrant to exist some judge had to have issued it and that's uh, that is a little bit telling we don't know what it's telling of there's a lot of areas in which manafort uh has been linked to activity that you might scratch your head about. And so whether that's Russian election interference or some financial stuff or some peculiar to Manafort set of concerns, uh, who knows? Uh, so I think it's still very much in the category of who knows? Uh, let's see where it goes. But it certainly is a sign that the investigation is serious and active.
3: So two questions, I guess, from from this uh, from the perspective of legal process naive uh, listener. First is, isn't the news about the convening of a grand jury that the investigation is a criminal investigation? I mean, at the outset, you know, it was sort of counterintelligence, maybe criminal. We'll see where it goes. But you convene a grand jury, as you said, it's entered a criminal phase. That's Newsworthy. Um, It's significant. It is a turning point. the The other question I have is, you know, we've talked in past episodes of the podcast about the relationship between the Mueller investigation and the congressional investigations, and it's noteworthy to me that the Manafort, the raid on Manafort's apartment that the FBI conducted, apparently came the day after Manafort spoke to, I forget, I'm afraid, which committee. I think Senate Intelligence. Um, and so I wonder whether the convening of a grand jury and the information um, gathering functions of that grand jury, the, the exercise of search warrants and so on, does that raise the prospect of more potential conflicts between the, the Mueller investigation and congressional investigations? And how, how is that going to get handled?
2: I, I wonder if actually if more signaled that. I mean, to the degree that it was anything to the timing, <clears throat> that it was either the FBI saying, that's great that you're cooperating with Congress and giving them documents. We have but stuff we more- don't care. <laughs> yeah, we have more stuff that we want, or maybe he didn't turn over enough information at all to the feds. Um, uh, you know, I, I, do- I will say that from my own reporting, I don't get the sense that, the, that Mueller's team is really all that interested in what the Senate Intelligence or House Intelligence Committees are doing as long as they stay out of their way.
0: Um, right. So, a couple, a couple things. So, under normal circumstances, Tammy, I would agree that this signaled a criminal investigation. Except in this case, we didn't need that signal because when Comey announced the investigation in his testimony, he made clear that it was both a counterintelligence and a criminal matter, or that there were ans- associated criminal matters. And so, and we knew that they were using a grand jury in Northern Virginia anyway. And so the – you know, I'm not sure how much information it adds to what we already knew in that regard. Uh, the possibility of a conflict between congressional investigators and criminal investigators is always there. And it generally arises when congressional investigators want to immunize people um, because that's how you – as a congressional investigation – Really screw up a criminal investigation as, as Shane had some experience with in the course of writing his first book, which involved, uh, one of the principal characters of which John Poindexter is somebody who, uh, never, whose conviction in the Iran-Contra investigation could not be sustained as a result of his having been given immunity from, by Congress. Um,
3: so does so, that mean Mueller is going to use the grand jury to move more quickly, so that Congress doesn't have the chance to immunize people? I, I
0: think, as long as Congress is not intending to immunize people, and I think uh, the, the the universe of possible conflicts is relatively small. I think, and um, uh, and in fact, having interviews with congressional investigators where it is a crime to lie, actually, can actually help criminal investigations in the sense that it's more opportunities to get more people on the record. That said, I think the posture will largely be one of quiet uh, – deconfliction of interests and benign neglect as long as there's no talk of immunizing people. Once you talk about immunizing people, that's when the executive branch investigators, uh, you know, start uh, raising holy hell.
2: All right. We're going to move on. No object <laughs> lessons today. Instead,
3: we have liquid lessons. We have liquid so lessons. many liquid lessons.
2: Um, <clears throat> we put out a call last week as a uh, for a contest. We're going to give away four of our Rational Security mugs to listeners who wrote in both w- either with drink recipes or persuasive cases as to why they should get one of the few precious Rational Security mugs. And I have to say, genuinely, we were totally overwhelmed with just. Awesome letters. Amazingly creative drink recipes great uh expressions of affection for the podcast the
0: tweet volume the tweet was volume amazing was
2: huge so many people like giving their best case i mean so i really want to say like in all honesty we read them all there was not a dud in the mix we like, love you guys are guys awesome you guys this are serious so drinkers right yeah <laughs> and we had a party um so we do not have time to read everything but we did call uh <clears throat> what we thought were the best drink recipes and also the best uh, please, straight up, just like persuasive arguments for a mug. So I think we're going to talk about those, and we're going to give away three for the drink recipes and one for the for the outright play. begging, right? Okay. For the outright begging, <laughs> exactly. So we should start with the drink recipes. Sure. All, All right. right. Do you want to, okay, Tammy? You pulled some, and I pulled some. Do you want to start with your but we reach? have to yeah. vote, right? Yeah. We're going to vote yeah, on these. We have are going to have, vote and, live. And Ben is. Ear. And Ben is also selected. From the, from the outright, please. So let's do the drink recipes first.
3: Okay, so first let me say that I, I cannot read them all out, but I did create a Twitter <laughs> moment. First time in my life I've done this. I did it for you, dear listeners. So you can go to at TC and find that Twitter moment of all your amazing drink recipes. But here are four of my favorites. Um, from Andrew Labor, uh, the flaming Mike Flynn pour one shot of russian vodka cover over with generous amounts of coca-cola float one teaspoon of turkish raka and light <laughs> very very well done okay uh or el sent in a new drink uh there were by the way many uh plays on white russians also yeah. many drinks involving orange uh in various combinations this one is a white russian with orange zest on top and what made this a winner to me is in honor of president trump and stephen miller i call it cosmopolitan bias <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that really sold me thank Excellent. you so I would order much that
2: drink. Yeah.
3: okay a third from joshua allen who um who said in the spirit of recent nsc firings the amf vodka gin rum tequila blue Mm. curacao sour mix garnished with a signed copy of dereliction of duty (laughs)
2: and
3: it was the garnish that i think really made that drink so special um but unbeatable i have to say and uh and credit to him kelsey atherton uh Actually developed this drink quite some time ago, but submitted it again for this contest. Uh, It's the Lockheed Martini, famous (laughs) to those of us on National Security Twitter, all of whom follow Kelsey. The Lockheed Martini requires two ounces of gin, a dash of vermouth, the Graf Diamond, a lemon (laughs) twist, Rim glass with gold flakes. Serve in an F thirty five B. Price one hundred eighty billion (laughs) dollars. Thank you, Kelsey. All
2: right. Uh, Also, okay. So we have some more. Uh, Linda Kelly writes with the blue combi. Two ounces of Bombay Sapphire gin. It's not really blue, but still, Uh, a third of ounce of the bitter truth violet liqueur. An ounce of blue curacao, pink lemonade and soda to make a tall drink. Cranberry juice as needed to adjust color to match curtains. (laughs)
0: Oh, well done
2: right. this actually sounds like a, a pretty decent drink um uh Daniel Simon writes with about 17 different ones what I'm gonna to read too the shift faced double vodka tequila some overpriced cold pressed juice presumably how the pride of the Southern California delegation sorry Daryl Isis tolerates Devin Nunes and the house cocktail make it yourself you know the way Steve Bannon does I thought that was fun um <laughs> Uh, the special prosecutor, this is from uh, Don Rollins sends in, but it's special prosecutor from David Wonderich. He says, An ounce of P- Perry's Tot Navy Strength Gin, an ounce of Dry Vermouth from France, of course, an ounce of Aperol, stirred in a mixing glass with ice, serve with a twist of orange in the shape of a Pomodoro, international security Blog. <laughs> this is actually, I, I would drink this today. And Brian Keen writes in with a drunk a drink that is so disgusting <laughs> and just vile in its creativity that I'm I wanna make this and just applaud you, sir. The smoke and the gun one drop liquid smoke two ounces of vodka real quality four ounces of sparkling white wine must be labeled inappropriately as champagne and six ounces of tomato juice soda water to bubble the top double points if it supports an Israeli business ice crush like all those who would keep America from being great again garnished with an orange twist dipped in ketchup and then wiped the ketchup off because that's disgusting (laughs) is like this this is like four different bad drinks like cross-pollinated into one Mm -hmm. well done sir that sounds just wretched Um, (laughs) so i don't know guys i mean personally i like the special prosecutor because it sounds good and i like the smoke and the gun
0: those are my two favorites
3: i think the special prosecutor does sound good but I gotta say, I
1: love the Flaming Mike
3: Flynn. <laughs> yeah, the, fl- I the, love
0: the Flaming like, Mike The Flynn. Flaming Mike Flynn's gotta win one. <laughs> I
1: feel like right. that's... An, I also thought the Blue Comey was pretty good.
0: The Blue Comey's The Blue Comey is hilarious. hilarious.
2: Okay, Comey. I think the Flaming Mike Finn and the Blue Comey, oh, those really... And now the question is, do we actually give it to the good drink or the gross drink? The special prosecutor of the smoke and the gun.
1: Wait a minute, what about Cosmopolitan Bias?
2: Oh. That is a good mm.
1: name. Mm.
0: <laughs> Let's have some votes.
1: All right, we'll do secret ballot. Uh, <laughs>
0: no, nah, we're
2: going to put our names on these. All right, who all right. wants... We think the Blue Comey? Who votes for the Blue Comey? All right, all four of us vote for the Blue Comey. That's unanimous. Okay.
3: The flaming Mike Flynn? Yeah. Unanimous oh, again. Unanimous. Okay, so now we have we have We've to one narrow it down.
2: Between the special prosecutor, the smoke and the gun, and... and the cosmopolitan and bias. And the cosmopolitan bias. Okay. All those in favor of the special prosecutor... Ooh, one. I'm Shame the only one who voted for it. Around. Okay. All those in favor of the smoke and the gun. <laughs> no, God <laughs> <guys. laughs>
1: It's just so gross. The ketchup wine at the end really got Yeah. Me. All right. All right. I
3: yield. Right.
2: All right. So it's the, the, it's the smoke and the gun. The, the smoke and the gun. The flaming
3: Mike Flynn and the blue blue Komi.
2: Thank you all. Those were fantastic. Um, We will make all of those, even the smoke and the gun.
3: (laughs) And drink them all at once. It just
0: So as listeners will remember, however, we reserved one of the mugs for the person who sent the email uh, making the case why he or she should get the mug. Uh, We got some incredible uh, pleas for the mug. I wish I could read them all. Uh, I can only read three. Here is our second runner up from Brendan Van Winkle. Hi, Ben. I would like one of the rational security mugs that the show is giving away. I started law school at the University of Texas in a couple of weeks, and I bet Professors Vladek and Chesney would drip with envy as I <laughs> sipped coffee from it during class. After finishing my coffee, I would then turn on the latest episode of the podcast and watch their envy turn to rage, all in the name of more rational security. Love the show. Uh So, so to uh, Brendan... Uh, Uh, I I applaud this instinct. And uh, if Bobby and Steve are listening, (laughs) um, (laughs) first runner up um, goes to Ryan McCarthy, who writes – and this, by the way, I just think he gets some points for prose quality here. Uh, Mr. Wittis, freshly slaughtered sheep and fatty water. That is what I have lived on for two years in the Peace Corps. I lost weight diarrhea was frequent, and now that I'm back in the land of the free, I have little to my name and have spent all the capital I have on a domicile. This domicile doesn't have many furnishings. I need very little. However, I am still readjusting to the drinks here. Ten different types of milk, various gradations of tea, coffee from a science lab beaker system, and straight-up bourbon. This brings me to why I am emailing you today. I have nothing to hold these various drinks. Life was simpler in the Peace Corps. We had water from a bucket and milk from a different bucket. No need for highfalutin glasses or mugs. At present, I have only a 90s themed Barney glass and my cupped hands to hold my hard seltzer. When did this become a thing? I am not one to ask for charity, but I am in desperate need of a mug. And if you have an extra one around especially one with the rational security logo on it, it would be much appreciated. Oh my
1: God! It's hard to imagine what could <laughs> top this.
0: Okay, it's hard to imagine so what could top to. this except that I received the following email, which I've had to edit a little to protect the identity of the uh, sender. Uh, from the depths of the deep state, uh, f- from the FBI uh, comes the following email. And yes, this is a real FBI employee Who writes, I don't really have many good reasons that I deserve the mug, as I'm sure your audience is composed of accomplished, witty, smart people, but I will give it a go. One, considering the agency I work for, I would love to walk around the office with a rational security mug since our unofficial motto is if it makes sense, we don't do it. (laughs) Two, I need a daily reminder of sanity since there is a good chance that three of my bosses will have been fired by President Trump. The three men I respect most, Comey, Mueller, and McCabe. God. Three, I deserve a mug because I work, albeit indirectly, for Jeff Sessions. <laughs> in, in parentheses, adds question mark, question mark, question mark, close parentheses. Four, I have to run 15 miles just to cope with the stress, anxiety, insanity of work. Well, not really. I just like to run. So, uh, Deep Stater from the FBI, you have won the fourth rational security um, mug.
3: Maybe the Deep Stater needs a bottle of bourbon (laughs) and like a hug.
2: Wow, those are great. Um, Your mugs will be forthcoming Your cocktails will be flowing.
3: Right. You do have to get in touch and let us know at what mailing address we can. Yeah.
2: We'll we'll get uh, back. We'll get back to that.
0: And we will use, uh, but when we do uh, send you those mugs, here's a service we will not be using. We will not be using stamps.com. That's right. We're actually going to go to the post office. Yes. We're going to spend hours in line at the post mm -hmm. office. And we're going to enjoy it. Love it. (laughs) Because they don't sponsor rational security.
2: (laughs) That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at our website. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at r a t l security. Send more drink recipes if you want. We'd love to hear more. We'll try them. Uh, whenever you download the podcast from Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. It helps us out. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed this week by Kim Jong Un and the Baby Cannons.
3: <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's okay. I think it works. Yeah, we've we've had enough puns for one show or clever titles. Uh, of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who you will not be hearing for two weeks because remember we're off. So wherever you are, listen to the podcast. Go back and catch up on old ones. Listen to this one twice, um, but enjoy wherever you and your friends and family are. In the depths of August. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.